Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The FT Is owning shares in big pharma companies storing up a dose of bad medicine for your portfolio? Veteran investor Terry Smith tells us why he thinks you'd need your head checked before investing in the sector. Plus, our new columnist Paul Lewis, presenter of the BBC's Moneybox, tells us why he thinks premium bonds are a good bet for high-rate taxpayers. And do sports stars have a winning financial strategy? At their peak, top footballers can earn hundreds of thousands of pounds a week, but how do they make the good times last after they've hung up their boots? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleague James Pickford, special studio guest Terry Smith, the founder of City Fund Manager Fundsmith, and joining us down the line, Paul Lewis, the presenter of the BBC's Moneybox and our latest signing as an FT Money columnist. Back in August 1992, Terry Smith's explosive book, Accounting for Growth exposed how blue chip companies were using accounting trickery to flatter their reported performance. His then employer tried to stop its publication and fired Terry when it was published. But in the wake of the book's publication, the Accounting Standards Board mounted a successful campaign to stamp out many of the abuses in company reporting that Terry's book shone a light on. Now, that was over 20 years ago, but for FT Money's relaunch issue this weekend, Terry has penned what you could consider as an additional chapter. His column this weekend, which is dedicated to how the pharmaceutical sector presents its accounts, is what we're going to discuss today. And I'm joined by Terry Smith in the FT studio. Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, your Fundsmith Equity Fund does not own any stocks in the pharma sector. Why is this? Um, there's more than one reason for it. Um but accounting is certainly a part of it. Uh, I think that the um, the pharmaceutical sector has really uh, started to malfunction uh, in, in general in recent years. And the R&D process uh, is really not invented any blockbuster drugs that really change our lives for quite some considerable time uh, because that's not really what it's trying to do. Quite a lot of the expenditure is about trying to get new patents, which are close to what they already do but renew their pricing power basically um, and the problem with that uh, is apart from not getting any new blockbuster drugs or, uh, during this period it's pretty inefficient uh, the drugs that they develop as a result very often uh, fail their trials because there's no efficacy beyond what we're already getting um, people are uh, more concerned about the price they're paying for them because they're not doing anything in addition to what they were doing before, or different to what they were doing before. So I think that's that's malfunctioned. And the accounting is the other reason, which I've written the article about. Uh, the uh, the industry has been on a, a spree buying up uh, biotech companies. It spent about $80 billion doing it last mm. year. 
I guess partly in replacement for the fact that its R&D effort is not working, and the accounting for those acquisitions and for a number of other things, restructuring costs and, and legal costs, are not getting into the calculation of what they call underlying earnings. They seem to have done this uh, conjuring trick in which they've persuaded the entire investor and analytical community to look at this measure of underlying earnings in the last five years or so, in which all of this bad stuff, the costs of their acquisitions, their legal costs, their restructuring costs, are all excluded. Now, that's what they're leaving out. But the things that you mentioned there are mostly non-cash charges. So the pharma companies aren't doing anything illegal or against the accounting rules by accounting for them in this way. So why do you therefore think they should use another method? Um, Well, I think they should use generally accepted accounting principles, which is the, the number I would look at. The number they look at doesn't use generally accepted accounting principles, we use these others. No, it's not illegal. I agree with that. But then you can do some pretty bad stuff without it being illegal. Um, I'm always, whenever people say to me, they used to say when I wrote my original book, oh, well, it's not illegal, you know what they're doing. I always used to quote something which was uh, a piece of graffiti I commonly used to see on condom machines in pub, <laughs> oh, yeah. pub loos when I was younger. Um, and um, and uh, on the condom machines, it always used to have the kite mark and it used to say something like, approved to British standard 1020. And some wag would always write underneath it, so was the Titanic. <laughs> like, it's kind of yeah. It's not illegal, but what they've done in uh, in these adjustments is focus people's attention on an earnings number other than the actual one that is in line with accounting principles, and which is vastly flattered. I mean, we're talking about in the case of something like AstraZeneca, the uh, the number they're trying to get you to accept with all these adjustments is four to five times the actual accounting reported earnings, and you say, oh. Well, these adjustments are mostly non-cash. Actually, the restructuring costs and the legal costs are pretty much cash. But they say, well, the the amortisation or write-offs on the acquisitions, that is non-cash. It's a goodwill item and we're just writing it off. That's true. But if you want to look at cash flows, well, I think you should, by the way, look in the cash flow statement. What they're doing is getting you in the profit and loss account to look at a blend of accrual accounting measures and and cash measures by taking out these acquisition costs that are non-cash. And, of course, the adjustments they're making are all in one direction. Uh, They just make the thing look better. Okay. Well, the pharma sector is popular with investors for its steady returns, and obviously it's going to benefit from demographic change as the population gets older and has performed well um, over the past few years. So do you think that the sector is overvalued and therefore heading for a fall? Um, I realise that it has been particularly popular with certain investors. I mean, mind you, um, you know, dot-com stocks were very popular with investors in 1999 and mining stocks were quite popular with investors until recently yeah, as well. so we all know what uh, happened uh, Well, exactly. I mean, you'd almost take popularity with investors not as a positive in this regard, uh, is my first point. Um, secondly, is it overvalued? Yes, I think it is. I mean, something like AstraZeneca, which appears to be on a P of 15 on these underlying earnings mm. that they've conjured up, um, is actually on closer to 70 times earnings in reality. If that's not overvalued, valued, I'd be somewhere between shocked and flabbergasted, frankly. Um, The most important point is this. I think it's led to um, the making decisions which are a misallocation of capital. Um, They've been on this buying spree in in buying up biotechnology companies, um, and they've paid premium for those biotechnology companies that they've bought, which are way beyond what people normally pay in takeovers. And I think they're able to do that because this accounting basically takes all of those costs out of their profit and loss accounts. So I think the, almost the most, most dangerous thing that you can face, I think, as an investor is not 
overpaying for things, which we all do a bit from time to time, hopefully not too much, or calling the cycle wrong. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who calls it right, really, in, mm. in, in terms of uh, being able to get their timing exactly right. It's buying companies that really misallocate capital. When we buy equities, unlike bonds, what we're relying upon is the management retaining part of the... Bonds pay out a coupon. Yeah. Uh, the companies pay out a dividend... Not all of them even do that, but they don't pay out the whole of their earnings. No. They retain some of it to invest, and that's what compounds in value for us. When they do that really badly, we don't get the compounding of value. And I would say that the pharmaceutical industry and what it's doing in the, the biotech acquisition spree is allocating capital very badly. And I think that will eventually produce, whether or not it's a sell today or tomorrow, I really haven't got a clue. Since I don't own any of them, I, I really don't spend much time thinking about whether I would sell it today or next week or a bit higher, a bit lower. Um, but undoubtedly, it's going to perform badly because of this misallocation of capital at some point. Well, let's end on a more positive note. Tell our uh, listeners what sectors and areas of the market you're positive about at the yeah, moment and uh, why. Yeah, I mean, two sectors that I think uh, look pretty good to me and are producing good value at the moment are a sector that's quite adjacent to the um, uh, the pharmaceutical sector, which is medical equipment. Okay. Uh, people who make uh, syringes and uh, and catheters and tubes and pins and plates and artificial joints and so on. Relatively low-tech stuff and eyeglass lenses and hearing aids and, you know, basically things which are uh, devices, uh, mostly relatively low-tech, um, and which are consumed regularly by medical practitioners and us as, as and patients. It, and again, will benefit from the ageing population. They, they get all of the demographic benefits that you were mentioning earlier about ageing populations in the developed world. So they've got all of the tailwind that you get from that. Um, but they haven't been doing the sort of things that I, that I think the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, has been doing in terms of uh, the, the misallocation of R&D and acquisition spend. And um, quite a lot of them are not that highly rated at the moment. The people who supply this stuff, if you look at it and look at their long-term ratings, the people who make artificial uh, joints, uh, for example, so the, the Zimmers and the Biomets and the Strikers and the Smith and Nephews, are not that highly rated. So I would, I would have a look in that sector for things. Um, and another one I think is good is what, I don't particularly like this term, but it's one that's used, and, and I guess it is reasonably, legacy IT businesses. Um, the, okay. the IT businesses that have been around for a couple of, uh, of, of sort of uh, cycles now, um, which have mostly been fairly uh, uh, dismissed by people, and as a result, pretty good value. So I'm thinking here of Oracle, I'm thinking of Microsoft, uh, I'm thinking of Sage in the UK and accounting, Intuit in US accounting and so on. Um, they're not as glamorous as the sort of social networking or mobile applications. The Googles companies. and the Apples. Uh, and... Yeah, it's not sex and violence, basically. It's, <laughs> a, it's, it's old line stuff. And again, I think some of those are pretty good value. Okay, well, some excellent insights into your world there. Thanks to Terry Smith, founder of Fundsmith. Paul Lewis has a big chunk of his own savings in premium bonds, and he's not alone. Britain's own a record £58 billion of the £1 bonds. But are they a good bet? Paul's been examining the odds in his first column for FT Money at this weekend and joins us today in the studio. Paul, you're a big investor in premium bonds yourself. Tell us why you like them. I like premium bonds because if you hold the maximum... £50,000, that went up uh, in June this year, you're going to win two prizes a month, roughly, 23 prizes a year of £25. Now, of course, that's only an average, and you'll find some months you'll win nothing for two or three months, then you might win two, three or four the next month. So it, it averages out, and because you've got 50,000, and every single one of those bonds has a 1 in 26,000 chance of coming up in the monthly draw, then you can expect that sort of average of two a month. The other thing 
it which is good for people who pay higher rate tax, and I'm in that fortunate position, is that they're tax-free. The prizes are tax-free. So although the interest rate doesn't sound great, it's about 1.2% if you take off all the big prizes that you're never going to win. So you can't count on those. Um, tax-free, uh, that comes to more like... Um, 2% uh, for a higher rate taxpayer, the equivalent of, of an account paying 2%. So for both those reasons, I, I really like them. Now, um, that certainly sounds good in comparison to um, most savings accounts on the market, considering that you've got instant access for your cash, which is the other big advantage of premium bonds. Yes, it is. And, you know, I know one of my colleagues, she puts her tax money in there and saves it up during the year to pay her tax and then pays the tax bill with it at the end. So, And all the time it's in there, of course, it's winning the odd prize and she thinks she's got a chance of winning a big prize. Now the prizes that you're normally going to win as you said are going to be the low value ones the £25 maybe a 50 or a 100 my mother certainly gets excited when she wins one of those but if you're tempted by the thought of winning winning the million pound prize of which there are two um, selected a month you could be in for a long wait. Well yes I mean just forget it obviously two people do have that fortunate win every month but it isn't going to be you Uh, even if you have the maximum 50,000 bonds, you will only win, on average, the million pounds every 47,000 years. And just to put that in context, that was about the last time human beings had sex with Neanderthals. So it's a long time ago. (laughs) A very long time ago. And finally, I can't resist asking you this question. What's the biggest premium bond prize that you've personally ever won? Well, until this month, I'd have said £25. This month, I got £100 with one of my bonds, and I was so pleased. But that is the most I've ever had. And realistically, it's probably the most I'll ever get. Well, you can read all about premium bonds in Paul's column in FT Money this weekend with lots more information about how to invest, how he calculated the odds and why he thinks they're a great idea for those higher rate taxpayers. Thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. My pleasure. Before our final item, a reminder that FT Money is relaunching this weekend. We've got new columnists, new sections, including FT Thrift, and we chat to multi-millionaire Nick Leslaw, the property tycoon, about how he manages his own money. And our cover feature will be looking at the financial strategy of sports stars. At their peak, top footballers can earn hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. But how do they make the good times last after they've hung up their boots? I'm joined in the FT studio by James Pickford, Deputy money editor who's been talking to the cadre of advisors keeping the finances of sports people in good shape finding out their strategy for success what can go wrong and how those in the city where earnings can also go up and down can learn from their financial ball control james welcome to the ft studio we all know that footballers are paid stupendous sums of money wayne rooney on three hundred thousand a week for instance so why should money management even be an issue here yeah i mean you could say this is a non-problem um when you see the sort of sums involved in more than 15 million for for mr rooney at uh, manchester united but that is at the very top elite level of of the beautiful game and um figures from uh, the professional footballers association show that the average is is far lower probably around about about a tenth of that um still a lot of money but when you throw into that the fact that tax and and national insurance and agents fees of around 5% you know, would probably cut it in half. You start to realise that you're going to have to put some planning in place. And the other big point is that um, the average career of a Premier League footballer is eight years. It's it's wow. a very short time span of, of earning those 
big bucks. And so if you want to make that last a long time, you're going to have to put in place um, some, some careful investment planning. So how do they go about managing their money so that it takes them into retirement and beyond? What are the kind of things that they're doing? Well, I spoke to one advisor um, who's invited into clubs to speak to groups of, of the younger players and introduce them to the to the notions of, of finance, you know, basic, the basics of personal finance, because a lot of these guys, um, they've been focused on football for a long time. And they won't have been, you know, they won't be familiar with pensions or investment funds and so forth. And they need to just be um, given the basics about net and gross pay and so forth. But he recommends to them that if they imagine their money is divided into three pots, so you've got a third um, that you could use for day-to-day spending, as much crystal champagne as you as you yes. care to drink. The uh, second on uh, mortgages and cars. Um, cars, obviously, are of great interest to quite a number of people. Yes, got to have a nice meter. And, um, and the third, and uh, for him, the most important um, element is investments and, and funds and so forth. And, um, and he recommends that you should spend at least a third of your income, that's your net income, you should put it away into that third pot. And actually, that's the bare minimum. You should really do do more if you can. So why do we still hear so much about footballers going bankrupt nowadays? Yeah, I mean, we had um, David James, the former goalkeeper and uh, presenter, who went bankrupt um, last year. Um, we had uh, Dominic Matteo, the uh, Leeds United and Liverpool defender, um, he went, who was declared bankrupt last month. There is a problem with footballers being surrounded by um, people who see their their youth and often their impressionable uh, character uh, and who see the money. And advisors won't always be um, pointing them towards uh, good investments. Uh, they will. Some will be seeking to to, to fleece them of their money, undoubtedly. Well, similar to, to lottery winners. There's well, absolutely, and there's also, unfortunately, there is a problem with high with gambling in in uh, in football, um, as in many sports. You know, high risk attitudes, and so a lot of footballers do tend to come a cropper with uh, the gambling problem. And what else can go wrong for them financially? Uh, well, um, there, there are, it's, it's very hard to get figures on this, but there are uh, high rates of divorce, um, certainly among the agents and financial advisors I've spoken to who deal with players, mm. particularly after, and rather sadly, after they retire from the from the game. Their fame has diminished. Well, maybe the fame, it may be just that they're bored if they haven't planned a, a future career. They will be at home. They maybe don't have much on. It can put the relationship under strain, mm. so for whatever reason. But equally, I wouldn't like to suggest that they're all getting divorced and that uh, because actually one of the things that advisors make clear is that in a lot of these cases, the woman can be uh, an extremely important um, part of, of, the, of the partnership the, between the two in terms of the, the player's career and the amount of money and the planning and the investment and getting to that f- um, stage of retirement where you can live uh, with a comfortable quality of life. Well, and certainly Victoria Beckham would seem to be the, the epitome of, um, <laughs> and with a successful career of her own. Well, you can read James Pickford's full piece in the relaunched FT Money this weekend. Thank you very much, James, for joining us in the studio today. We'd love to know what you think about the finances of footballers, winning on the premium bonds or about money matters more generally. 
Do get in touch with us via email. The address is money at ft.com or you can tweet us at ftmoney. And you can also leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else is in this weekend's edition. In my serious money column, I reveal the results of my experiment to only use cash for two weeks as the Bank of England talks about phasing it out. And we reveal what every woman needs to ask about her pension as big changes to the state pension are ushered in. Plus, we've share tips from our sister publication, Investors Chronicle, and the latest director's deals. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Paul Lewis and Terry Smith. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.